All right, so this is week three in Exodus. We are making our way section by section through this great, great narrative in the Old Testament. The book of Exodus is the second book in the Pentateuch, which is the technical term for the first five books of the Bible. That would be Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so we're picking up, uh, to compare it to a modern analogy, we're picking up at the Empire Strikes Back after Star Wars has already been released. So Star Wars, Episode 4, was the first movie released in the franchise. Those of you who know that should know that, but those of you who don't know that, where have you been? I mean, so um, Episode 4 was released in 77, and then Empire Strikes Back comes along in, in 80, 1980. And so right now we find ourselves in the second, the sequel to the book of Genesis. And so we're picking up themes. I hope that you're noticing themes that are carrying over from that book begin to emerge even in the first couple of chapters here in the book of Exodus. In the last few weeks, we have explored Pharaoh and his attempt to oppress and ultimately to some degree snuff out the expansion of the Israelites. And as, we, as he has done so, we've seen him up the intensity with every single episode. For instance, in the first chapter, he tries to oppress them through slavery and hard labor. When that is not successfully curbing their multiplication, he then proceeds to infanticide by instructing the Hebrew wives to kill all the male Hebrew children, and the Hebrew midwives resist, as we saw last week. And then when he finds out they're resisting, he now issues a decree for genocide in which all Hebrew males are to be tossed into the Nile River and murdered. Evil is always frustrated by its inability to stop what is right. And when evil gets frustrated and the smaller attempts to stop what is right don't work, then evil will engage in progressively harsher methods to get the job done. That's always the case with evil. That's the way it is with evil himself, Satan. He will engage in progressively harsher methods to get what he wants accomplished, consider Job. If he can't get you to forsake God by taking, afflicting you, afflicting your body or killing your children, he'll do what he has to do to get you to bless, not bless God, but to curse him instead. But we've also observed that in the midst of all this progressive evil that's taking place, God is preserving his people, a remnant of his people, but he's also doing it through some incredibly courageous women. Last week we saw two of them, Shifra and Pua. This week we'll consider three more, Moses' birth mother, Moses' sister, Moses' adoptive mother. But before we jump into the text, I just want to remind us that something that's being played out behind the scenes in this passage that we must appreciate and I know that you know this, but I want to remind you of it, and that is that God is a God of justice who stands on the side of the oppressed. There can be no clearer, well, I'm sure there are clearer themes in Scripture, but that's a, that's a big one, that God is a God of justice who stands on the side of the oppressed. Consider just a few Psalms, Psalm 99.4, the mighty king, referring to God, loves justice. Psalm 103, verse 6, the Lord executes justice, for all the oppressed. 
Psalm 146, verses 7 through 9, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. And we as his people are to go and do likewise. That is, we are instructed by God to act for others the same way that God acts on their behalf. So we read in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 18 and 19, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Isaiah 1, verse 17, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Isaiah 58, 6 and 7, is not this the fast that I choose, the Lord says? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? And when you see the naked, to cover him and to not hide yourself from your own flesh. This oppression is to be opposed not only by God, but also by God's people. Ten years ago, John Piper wrote an article entitled, Don't Waste Your Martin Luther King Jr. Weekend. John Piper's quite known for talking about don't waste your things, and he said, don't waste your life. He wrote a book on it, Don't Waste Your Cancer. Pastor Ted's reminded us of that little booklet uh, recently. But we find ourselves providentially on Martin Luther King Jr. Weekend. And here's what John Piper wrote in that article. He says, Monday is Martin Luther King Day. I encourage all pastors to make something of it this weekend to simply take note of the day and speak a word of exhortation to your people concerning their hearts in matters of race and ethnicity. None of us, none of us is without need for help in the purification of our hearts in the way we feel and think about other ethnic groups. We need help. The point of this weekend, Piper says, is not to celebrate all that MLK was. The point is to lift up some magnificent things he stood for and some necessary and amazing achievements of the civil rights era in which he was a key leader. We are Christians and can see things in the light of providence and the gospel. And then Piper quotes what he calls the most powerful word from King that he has ever read, referencing his letter from Birmingham jail on April 16th, 1963. And in it, he addresses his white brothers and sisters who were sympathetic and supportive of Dr. King and his initiatives, but who, while they did have eyes to see what was going on, they lacked the heart to feel and the will to do anything about the oppression that he was experiencing and that African Americans were experiencing. So he writes the following. Perhaps it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging dart of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, When you've seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and sees tears welling up in her eyes when she's told that Funtown is closed to colored children, 
and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in their little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you, when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, and when you first, your first name becomes, I'll just say N-word, and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given the respected title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you're a Negro, living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect, and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a de- 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 degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. There comes a time, he says, when men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. I think the Hebrew midwives would agree. And I think Jochebed, Moses' mother, would agree. And I think that Miriam, Moses' sister, would agree. And I think that Pharaoh's daughter would agree. There reaches a point where evil is so saturated, where urgency and the call to action is necessary, that, obe- uh, that resistance to this oppression is called for. And so that's what we see taking place in Exodus 1 and 2. And so this morning, I want us to look at these three women and a baby. I want us to look at the three women that are featured, and then I want us to look at the baby Moses. And we're going to see a portrait in each one of these individuals this morning. So first of all, let's consider Moses' mother, who is a portrait of creative courage. A portrait of creative courage. Look again at verse 1 of chapter 2. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. Now, I'm not going to say anything about that. That is very significant. That means that Moses is in a priestly family. He is a family, there's, a, there's spiritual significance to the tribe of Levi and being born a Levite, and we're going to see and appreciate that more in the coming months as we see more of Moses and what takes place with him. Verse 2, the woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, literally when she saw that he was good, echoing the language of Genesis 1, she hid him three months. When she hid him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, we later learn in Exodus 6, verse 20, that Moses' mother is named Jochebed. His father is named Amram. And Hebrews 11.23 gives us a behind-the-scenes peek at what's transpiring in Jochebed and Amram's mind as they consider what to do with their boy, Moses, who's not named Moses at this time. But Hebrews 11.23 reads, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
So just like the Hebrew midwives who stood in opposition to the king's edict of infanticide, so also Jochebed is standing in defiance against the king's edict of genocide, especially concerning throwing her baby boy into the Nile to be killed. And I think what's amazing here is even though she is fearing God and opposing the king and his edict, she nevertheless creatively and courageously finds a way, she hopes, by faith, to see his life spared and saved. And she does it by putting her son in the Nile. How, how, how weird and strange of that. Now, granted, he's protected. He's put into a little boat, or it's described as a basket. We'll come back to that near the end of the sermon. But she hides him because she's, he's reached a point where he can't be hidden. We're not told why. Perhaps it's just becoming more obvious. I mean, he's three months old now. He's maybe louder. He's only, it's only going to get, he's only going to get more mobile from here. And as he gets more and more mobile, he will be more and more difficult to contain and restrain. And perhaps that's the reason she just says, okay, well, it's time to, time to get rid of him. But when she could hide him no longer, verse 3 says, she took a basket, made a bulrushes, and daubed it with bitumen pitch, another waterproofed it, and put the child in it, and then placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Now, so often we can think that this story is like, I mean, sometimes it's uh, manufactured in, in plays or in other stories as though Moses were placed into this basket and then sent sailing down the Nile. That, that's not really what's envisioned here. I, I have a feeling that she's being very strategic in where she places him. She's placing him where she hopes he will be seen. And specifically seen, she knows who comes there. She knows Pharaoh's daughter has been around there. And perhaps she finds, well, maybe that will work, getting him there among the women in Pharaoh's house who might have compassion on him. So she places him, it says, among the reeds by the riverbank, conveniently where he was also found. So I don't think he was sailing anywhere. I think he was placed there and then in hopes that his crying would identify that there was a baby there in the reeds. But imagine that you're Jochebed and you've given up your three-month-old son. You know, sometimes the bravest thing a mom can ever do is to let go of the child that belongs to God even more than it ever belonged to her. I mean, think of Abraham and Isaac, Genesis 22. God calls upon Abraham to give up his only son, the son of promise, the one that God told him he would have. And then God says, give him back to me. Or think of Job giving up his children. Think of Hannah, who so desperately wanted a child and then has Samuel and then gives him to the Lord to be raised in the tabernacle. Think of the two women fighting in front of Solomon over which one should have the dead child and which one should have the living child. And when he says, well, just cut the baby in half and you can split it, one woman says, that's fine. And the other woman, whose baby it really was, says, no, 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 give it to that woman. I'd rather she have a live baby than my own baby be dead. Most poignantly of all, think of Mary at the foot of the cross, seeing her grown-up, who was once a little boy, now a 33-year-old man, Jesus hanging there. You know, we moms, you, in, in a sense, life is about learning to trust God and let go of your kids, isn't it? Even if you're not giving them up, 
because you don't want them to die of genocide like Moses' mother is here, but kindergarten's tough. They've been with you for a number of years, and sometimes if you're not homeschooling them and you're sending them you know, off to school somewhere, then it's, 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 a, it's a sense of loss. It's like, you've been with me all these years, and now you're going to school or college, a bigger step where they step out of the house or step into the workforce, step into a trade and, and leave the home. Then there's marriage, which is another sense of letting go because now they're forming their own independent family and they're leaving father and mother. And then perhaps hardest of all, which so many of you, well, several of you have experienced, and that's the death of a child, whether they were young or whether they were older. And you've had to experience what it's like to let a child go. I just want you to know that our God knows and our God sympathizes with you. God knows what it's like to give up a child, give up a son, and he's able to sympathize with us and enter into our difficulties. I read a prayer this week from Scotty Smith, as I normally do. You've heard me mention him a number of times. He's a pastor in the Nashville area. And he wrote a prayer this week called, When, Not If, Life Gets Messy, Confusing, or Hard. And he writes the following. He says, Heavenly Father, thank you for parenting us so well through the scriptures. You don't primarily give us verses to claim, but you come to us as a father to know, love, and trust. Today in particular, thank you for validating our sufferings and for pledging yourself to us in our hard places and broken stories. You don't say to us if we pass through deep waters and rushing rivers, but when we do so, you will be with us. Thank you for being upfront with us about what we can expect in life between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. There will be difficult seasons, hard stretches, and unplanned for chapters, but you are just as sovereign over our sorrows as over our joys. Grant us the perspective Peter lived with. No matter how many times you give us in this world, no matter how many years you give us in this world, suffering in this life is only, according to 1 Peter 5.10, for a little while. In the big scheme of things, it's only going to hurt a little longer. Thank you for your promise to restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us in, by, and after our sufferings. Help us reason like Paul as well. Give us his gospel math. When he added up the glorious things you've prepared for us in the future, he saw that they far, far, far outvalued all the sorrow we'll experience in this life. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us, Paul said in Romans 8.18. So that's his prayer. And it's a good reminder that when life gets messy, confusing, and hard, God's not racking his hands in heaven, wringing his fingers, wondering what's going to happen? What am I going to do now? No, he is sovereignly working out his perfect plan. Mom, also remembers, remember your labors are not in vain. You don't see the end from the beginning. You don't know all that God is doing. You don't know if you're a Shifra or a Pua or a Miriam or a Jochebed or Pharaoh's daughter or someone else. But here we see God's plan to save an entire nation turning on the hinge of a few faithful women who simply love children in their midst. The kingdom of God is advanced when women love children in their midst. It's powerful. Don't miss that. You ladies who labor teaching little ones in Sunday school or you moms laboring at home with little ones, you are doing kingdom advancing heaven-altering, powerful work. 
because you are joining God in the very mission of redemption. This is how God's advancing his redemptive purpose, by women loving children. It's an, it's an amazing thing. Well, I mean, God's not advancing his redemptive purpose by moving and shaking the heavens. Now, he's going to do that in upcoming chapters for sure. But right here, he's doing quiet work. He's doing almost imperceptible work by women who are walking by faith, who are believing the promises of God, who are fearing God more than they fear anything or anyone else, and they are loving children and refusing to kill them. A very important word for us on this Sanctity of Life Sunday. So that is point number one, Moses' mother, a portrait of creative courage. These other ones will move quicker. Number two, Moses' sister, a portrait of resolute resourcefulness. A portrait of resolute resourcefulness. I want you to see Miriam's activity here. Now, her name, Miriam, is not mentioned until Exodus 15, but many commentators and assume that this is who is being referred to here as Moses' sister, since we're not told he has other ones. We are told that he has an older brother named Aaron in Exodus 4 and Exodus 7, who's three years older than him. But this is the only sister that we, that we are aware of. And notice what she does, verse 4. And his sister stood at a distance. Moses is in the river now, in the little basket. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Then skip down to verse 7. Then his sister, after Pharaoh's daughter recognizes this, this basket and what's going on, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Verse 8. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. She's put on watch here. She's watching, right? She's old enough. Now think about this. She's a girl. Don't think of Miriam as some old woman. She's a girl. That's the way the text refers to her. She's a girl. And many scholars believe her to be somewhere between 6 and 12 years old at this point. Think about it. She's old enough that she can have an intelligent conversation with Pharaoh's daughter, but she's not old enough that the Egyptians would wonder, why isn't this slave girl somewhere else doing her job? Why isn't she in the field or working at home? She's not an adult. She's a kid. And verse 4 says that she stood at a distance to know what we would be done to him, that is done to Moses. She's looking very intently thinking, what's going to happen to my little brother? What's going to happen to my little brother? And so she develops a plan. She knows what she's going to do. Perhaps Jochebed informed her of what she was supposed to do. But she's here, and she's sitting there, or standing there, and she's looking at what's going on, and then she steps up and says to Pharaoh's daughter, a a mildly powerful woman, talking to a 6- or 12-year-old girl, Little girl, shall I go get someone who can nurse him for you? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yeah, go. And she goes and gets Jochebed, Moses' mother. Now, kids, you see what Miriam does here? You see what's going on? She's old enough to participate in the plan of God. She's old enough to play a part in God's kingdom, 
don't think that serving the Lord is just for older people. Like it's an adult thing. I'll do it when I get older. God doesn't really have a purpose for kids. He doesn't really involve kids in anything. We don't get to play any significant role. We just sit on the seats and listen to preachers and go to big people church. No, no. The Bible validates the importance of your age and what you can do in the kingdom of God. I mean, why of all the stories concerning the life of Jesus do we get him at 12? I mean, we're told about his birth, and then we're told about ministry at age 30 on. But then we get this little scene in Luke 2 of Jesus at 12. Well, there's some significance there to what's going on in Jesus' life at that time. But certainly, it's also to put some value on the fact that God cares about kids too. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, Jesus said to the disciples who would rather hinder them. No, children are welcome to Jesus and they're welcome to be used by God. I wonder, kids, would you, would you look after your little sibling? Do you have older kids? Do you have concerns for your younger brothers and sisters? Are you like Miriam here? She's a good example for you who cares about the younger sibling. She doesn't say, oh, Moses, he's just going to grow up and annoy me. He's younger, he irritates me, he's got all kinds of questions, he won't stop talking, he asks me to do everything I don't want to do. No, she's concerned that her little brother stays alive. Do you see what remarkable things a kid can do? Would you be able to speak to an adult like this? You know, I'm always impressed with a, a young person who will come and shake my hand or got a good grip too, look me in the eye and ask questions. And I've, I've received that even recently from some of you younger kids who ask me questions about the sermons or things. That's a good thing. Jesus was a good question asker, a respectful, good question asker. And this is what we see with Miriam. Would you do, kids, what God wanted you to do, even if all other sorts of people around you don't want you to do it? You willing to stand against the culture like Miriam stood against the culture here and said, you know what, even if the whole culture wants all the babies dead, I'm not going to do it. The March for Life this weekend shows that your generation radically believes that. Praise God for your generation, who has recognized that life has value. And, is, and would that God would render abortion obsolete in your generation. And you're the generation that can do it. So just observe here and appreciate the value of what kids can do in their resolute resourcefulness on behalf of God and his kingdom. Point number three, Pharaoh's daughter, a portrait of powerful pity. A portrait of powerful pity. Look at verse five. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river, but saw the basket among the reeds. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the, the Hebrews' children. Then look at verse 9. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me, talking to Miriam, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Now Pharaoh's daughter 
has compassion, and she can do something about it. She's a portrait of pity, but she's a portrait of powerful pity. Jochebed knew that. Miriam knew that. That we've got to get this baby somehow to someone who can do something about the plight. And this is a small miracle on behalf of Pharaoh's daughter, considering who her daddy is. Think about that. Her daddy's not the most compassionate man in the world, is he? He's not winning any Compassion International Awards. <laughs> He's not winning anything except for totalitarian dictatorships that want to kill their people, which no sane culture would ever give an award for that. This woman is not a part of God's household. We're, we're, we're given no reason to think that she's a believer. She's an Egyptian. She's a Pharaoh's daughter. But yet, we see in her a marvelous example of God's common grace. She has decency. She has kindness. She has compassion. She sees a helpless baby and wants to help. You've heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Meet the parable of the Good Egyptian. Listen, people made in God's image are capable of doing wonderful things. Nobody is as evil as they could possibly be. Unbelievers are not walking evil factories thinking all the ways they can possibly do to just wreck the lives of everybody around them, especially Christians. Most people just want to help. They want to help somebody. Most people, by God's common grace, when they see somebody in a bad situation, you know what they want to do even if they're not Christians? They help people. They pull over on the side of the road and help the single mother fix the flat tire. Or they give somebody a lift. I've been helped in my life, I'm sure in your life, as many by non-Christians as Christians. God sends his rain on the just and the unjust. Common grace is a beautiful thing. It's an amazing reality. It's a precious thing. Praise God, we have common grace in the world. Because we can actually get up and live a normal day without threat that our property is going to be sacked and our kids are going to be kidnapped and all hell's going to break loose. No, because God's common grace is in the world. There is goodness present. Thank God that people aren't as bad as they could possibly be. Thank God that people who don't even know him are still, in many ways, decent and honorable human beings. In all our efforts at evangelism, we must not adopt an us versus them mentality. We must find ways that we can develop mutually respectful relationship with others and dialogue with them as though they're an image bearer, because they are. This is the way Paul commends our evangelism in Colossians 4 when he says, walk towards outsiders with gentleness and kindness. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul instructs Timothy to preach the gospel and all that and, and resist the prayer, but, but to do so with gentleness and patience, knowing that perhaps God will grant them repentance. We're not to take a harsh tone. We're to be gentle and mutually respectful. And we could preach a whole sermon on this. We're not going to do it, but I just want you to notice and appreciate something. Look at what happens in verse 9, or verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. We have a wonderful picture of adoption. The beauty of adoption. 
in the world. Jochebed's courage to give up the child and then later Pharaoh's daughter and her sweetness to bring the child in. Adoption is a wonderful reality. And I want you to know that it's, it's a reality that the greatest leader, perhaps, aside from the Lord Jesus Christ, that the Bible holds up is Moses. And he had a very, 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 very difficult upbringing. Some of God's greatest leaders emerge from some of the hardest, most difficult circumstances. Circumstances that they had hard families of origin, that they had difficulties growing up, and yet God uses them. That's not the case with all of God's leaders or all of God's people. Some of us have wonderful families. Praise God for that. But some of God's greatest leaders, especially Moses and even the Lord Jesus, occur from very difficult circumstances. I want you to notice something here. I want you to notice some providential irony that's going on. As God works out his plan, there is so much irony in this text, it's almost dripping off the pages, the way God is working it out. One of the things that we learn repeatedly in these first few chapters is that God's providence loves to work itself out through irony. We saw it in chapter 1 with the irony of oppression leading to multiplication. The more that Pharaoh sought to oppress, the more the people of Israel multiplied. And the command of death leading forth to a bursting of life. And ironically, what had become a source of death for Hebrew babies, namely the Nile River, had become a source of life for one of them, namely Moses. Also, the irony that from Pharaoh's house went forth this edict of death, death, and yet God would use the very family of Pharaoh himself to save God's people from that very edict. Pharaoh's fear would lead him to oppress the Israelites, and yet the fear of godly women led them to protect the Israelites. The irony of God using women who Pharaoh thought were of no threat to him at all, just kill the Hebrew males. The women are of no threat to me. But ultimately, it's the women who are planting the seeds of his overthrow. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, is defeated by three women, or really five women, and a defenseless little baby boy. And then Moses' own mother, who gives him up, receives him back, and is then paid to take care of her baby. Sweet gig. That is a sweet gig. Pharaoh is paying to raise the one who will deliver God's people and end him. Pharaoh's paying for it. That's our God. You want to oppose me? Just watch how I make you pay. You're going to pay for it. It's just like God kicks him in the pocketbook too. I love it. It's God's irony. Unless we think this is just confined to biblical times and, yeah, this happened back then, it doesn't really happen today. No, God is still a God of providential irony. He's still this way. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, right? Does he change? No, he's this way. So let me give you a few examples. This is somewhat humorous. One summer, this family of three from Southern California went hiking in Oregon, and as they trekked in the woods, they found a Bible lying on a huge rock. Because the Bible evidenced no weather damage, they concluded the owner had recently left it there. Though the cover had the name Sam on it, there was no further identification. 
As the father thumbed through the pages, he noticed heavy underlining, exclamation points, and devotional comments that indicated that Sam possessed a vibrant relationship with Jesus. Not knowing what to do with the Bible, the family just took it with them. One day, the parents were interceding for their daughter and felt led to pray for a future spouse. The spiritual passion of Sam came to mind, and they found this prayer surging from their hearts. God, please send a man to marry our daughter who loves you as much as Sam, that, whoever that young man was. Since Sam faith, Sam's faith had so clearly reflected their hopes for their daughter, they simplified the prayers over the years and just said, Lord, send us a Sam. Well, what parents would not smile when four years later they learned that their daughter, now in college, was dating a guy named Sam. One weekend, this Sam offered to help the family move across town. While carting boxes from the house to the moving trailer, he saw a book slide out. When Sam picked it up, he was stunned to realize that he was holding his long-lost Bible. Where'd you get that Bible, he asked in amazement. That's my Bible. Indeed, that was Sam's Bible. Not only did God send a Sam, he sent the Sam. Sam eventually married his daughter. Providential irony, isn't it? Let me give you another one. Marilyn recounts an incident in which she and her husband found themselves $1,500 short of what they thought they had in their bank account. When they figured out that Marilyn's husband had mistakenly recorded $1,500 deposit twice, he said, Marilyn, don't write any more checks. I've, I've made a real mess. We're $1,500 overdrawn. Then they prayed together and asked for God's help. That night, they went to their weekly church supper that cost $10.50 for the family to eat. Marilyn asked the Lord how to pay for this since they were overdrawn and could not pay for the meal with the check. She then remembered she had 50 cents in her purse and $10 she was saving to put toward her husband's Christmas present. Though she didn't want to use the gift money, she thanked God for reminding her of it. However, that night when she came to the counter to pay for their meals, the woman said, someone already paid for your dinner tonight. Marilyn told me, for 18 years I had eaten at this church potluck and no one, not one, had ever paid for our family until this night. Clearly, God understood her unique plight, small as it may seem, and responded. Emboldened by this moment, Marilyn asked God to supply the $1,500. After she told her husband about her prayer of faith, she called every day and jokingly asked, well, did you get the check through the mail? Together, they would laugh, and though she kept praying. Ten days later, a big envelope arrived that was marked express mail. Since her husband usually received that kind of mail, she left it on the counter. And when she later recognized the names of good friends on the envelope, she decided to open it. Inside, she found two small envelopes. When she opened the first one, she found a check for $1,500. In utter amazement, she opened the second envelope and found a note saying, Accept this gift, not from us, but from the Lord. When her husband came home that night and learned of the check, he was so awed that he called the family together to thank the Lord for his very specific answer to their prayer. When Marilyn decided to call these friends that very night to thank them, she was eager to learn why they gave that amount. She inquired, why'd you send 1500 Why not 10 or 100 or even 200 Her friend replied, well, we both impressed in our prayer time together that you had a financial need and we didn't know how much. We decided to separate for a time of prayer on our own, asking God to help us. And when we came back together, the Lord just impressed on us to give about $1,500. It's just amazing, providential irony. I got one more, then we're going to move on and wrap up. The day Steve and Brenda Nesbitt fully surrendered their lives to serve Christ in France, they went to a local supermarket near their home in Royal Oak, Michigan. In this time of surrender to God's call to serve overseas, they prayed, Lord, we will go to Ranchine, which is a little town outside of Lille in France. Probably butchering those names, sorry if you're from there. After that prayer, just one hour later, they needed to pick some things up at the store. And while they were shopping, they overheard someone speaking French. 
So they engaged this person in conversation and in passing said they were headed to France. The man asked where, and they said, Lille. The man replied, that's where I'm from. Then Steve said, well, actually, it's a little town just outside of that. When he named the town of Ronchin, the man said, that's exactly where I'm from. Afterwards, Steve and Brenda asked the question, what are the odds of surrendering our lives to Jesus Christ completely and God confirming that, sur that surrender a few moments later by having some French person from the very village you're going to meet in a store in Royal Oak, Michigan? This was no coincidence to them. Almost three years after moving to France, something else happened. After looking at great length for a house to rent in Ronchin, the, the Nesbits finally found one that was suitable. The owner was unavailable to give them the key on the day that they were to move in, but said the elderly couple who lived next door had a copy of the key. When they arrived at the neighbor's place to get the key, the neighbor lady learned that Steve and Brenda were Americans from the Detroit area in the U.S. and commented, well, that's interesting. I have a son in Royal Oak, Michigan. You wouldn't be any chance to have known or ever met him. Of course they had. And that elderly couple became like adoptive grandparents to the Nesbitt children. God is a God of providence. Now, no, we don't know this stuff on the front end. God is working out his plan, and then we're able to look back. But surely we have stories, even in our own midst of things like that, of God working in providential ways that are just inexplicable to us. So let's wrap up. We're going to look at one more very quickly, and that is, Moses, the portrait of divine deliverance. We see this in chapter 2, verse 10, where we, where we read, she named him Moses, Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, because he, she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, I want you to appreciate something. We're going to pick up two things very quickly and then wrap up. I want you to appreciate the fact that Moses is experiencing his own personal exodus. He's experiencing what he's going to lead his people out of, and we're going to see more of this next week because he's going to experience another one 40 years later. God is preparing his leader for this moment. In fact, the word for basket that describes what Moses was placed in is used only one other place in the Old Testament, and that's in the flood narrative in Genesis 6 through 8 describing the ark. I think that's very intentional. Just like God built a great big ark for one family to save his people, now he's going to build a little bitty ark for one baby to save his people, who will grow up to save his people. This little ark, like Noah's, will become a vehicle through which God will rescue the righteous from watery destruction, foil the plans of the wicked, and create a new nation in the midst of the old. Pharaoh's daughter heard his cries and took pity on him, just as God heard the cries of his people and took pity on them. That's a very intentional detail. That she heard the cries and took pity. That's our God. He heard the cries of Israel and took pity on them by giving them this child to deliver them, who had already gone through his own personal exodus. Moses' basket is taken from the reeds, just as Israel be, will be rescued through the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea as it's called, Moses is drawn out of the water even as others are drowned, just as Israel will later be drawn out of the water through the River Jordan as the, other, as the Israelite armies are drowned. Miriam is the key witness here, just as she will be at the Red Sea and the crossing of it. 
With his adoption by Pharaoh's daughter, Moses is immediately transferred from slavery to sonship, just as God's people will be. He's experiencing his own personal exodus. Just as God spared Moses in his childhood by, from death by Pharaoh to save his people, so God spared Jesus in his childhood from death by Herod to save his people. He delivered Moses so that he could deliver the Israelites, so that he could deliver Jesus, so that he could deliver us. That's where we get put in the story. 1,400 years later, God would deliver the greater Moses from Egyptian threat so that he could grow up living a perfect life of righteousness and obedience to God and laying his life down on the cross as an atonement for the sins of all those who will trust in him and believe in him so that we would be delivered and experience our own personal exodus out of slavery into sonship. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and all that it teaches us about you and all that it teaches us about what you were doing with your people in those days to preserve and accomplish what you would eventually do in the Lord Jesus Christ for us in these days. Thank you that this is our story. This is not just the story of them then. This is the story for us now. This is a story about a greater Moses who experienced a greater exodus to deliver us from a greater slavery that we might be brought into a greater promised land. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being that greater Moses for us, for being our prophet, our priest, our king, for being the one who delivered us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of God, for rescuing us from our slavery to sin and adopting us into the family of God. Thank you for all the ways your providence, God, has worked its way out down to this very day in some seriously ironic ways for your greater glory and our ultimate good. We pray all this to your praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing quickly, and then we will be dismissed. <laughs>